Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real, you're already working hard to earn your money, but how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Sunday, March 14th. Yep, your clock's changed. Okay, get over it. It's all done. Hey, you know what today is? It is a Selection Sunday for the NCAA tournament. Eh, maybe you don't care about that. Mark says he used to actually take a day off for the beginning of the tournament. Now, not so much. Funny how children will do that to you, huh, Mark? This is the program that takes the mystery out of your financial life. And one of the things that we try to do on the weekends is we try to have guests that help you uncover something interesting that is out there in the in the ether. And we've been talking so much over the last year of this COVID period about statistics, about the probabilities. We talked about it with the elections. And I think a lot of people are confused, okay? You think that this is simply just nutty or someone who's saying the statistic is not trustworthy. Well, we have the second part of our interview with Tim Harford, who is a writer. He writes in the Financial Times. I think he's actually an economist by training. Anyway, one of the concepts around statistics that we're going to dive into is the difference between saying that one big group of measured folks or or measurements, um, when you talk about people and data, we will sometimes say N equals all. So this is like everyone in the group, right? But in this beginning part of the interview, we talk about how N equals all is not equal to N equals everyone. And what does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, Tim Harford is going to unravel that for us. Here is the second part of our interview with Tim Harford. You go into an interesting conversation in the book about the data set. This just happened to me earlier this week that somebody sent me a survey and said, let's use this in our segment, you know, that we're going to do on CBS this morning. I said, "Uh, there's 800 people that are sampled. What are we representing here? Can you explain why, let's talk about N equals all is not the same as N equals everyone. Can you explain that in a way that everyone listening who's not a geek like you or like me can get this? So there's a very old idea in statistics of sampling. So I want to know how people are going to vote in the upcoming election. So I'm going to phone 
a random sample of people and ask them how they're going to vote. And then that'll tell me how everyone's going to vote. And that can work. There are two challenges. The first is if you just phone two people and they both say, I'm going to vote Joe Biden, do you conclude it's 100% for Biden? Or do you say probably, you know, that could easily have happened by chance. I need to phone some more people. But then the second problem is even after you phoned 500, 1,000, 2,000, maybe 10,000 people, can you be sure the people who are picking up the phone are representative of the people who don't pick up the phone? Are they the same mm. age? Do they have the same attitudes to opinion pollsters? Some people will refuse to answer your question. They've got a different uh, routine. Some people are out, some people are at home. Obviously, a lot more people are at home these days. So there's the sample size. The bigger the sample size, the more accurate your result. But then there's also whether the sample is representative or is in some way skewed. It's a big issue. Now, along come the big data guys. And the big data, and when I say guys, obviously a lot of them are girls as well. It's, it's a gender neutral term. Along come the big data fans. And they say, oh, it's fine. Because what we can do is we can just measure every single data point. So when Google want to analyze the content of, say, Gmail inboxes, they don't have to take a random sample of a thousand or a million inboxes. They can just analyze all of it. When they analyze Google search terms, they can analyze all of them. Or you can do sentiment analysis on Twitter. You can do all of it. Mobility analysis from tracking people's mobile phones. You can do all of it. You don't have to sample. The big data people say, that's great. N equals all. It's not N is the size of your sample. It's not N is a a hundred or n is a thousand. We sampled a hundred people. We sampled a thousand people. N equals all. We got everything. We got everybody. That's great. Here's the problem. And it's a pretty obvious problem when you start to think about it. Not everybody has a Gmail account. Mm. Not everybody has a Twitter account. Not everybody carries a smartphone around. You, if you think about it for a moment, this is obvious. But it's very easy to forget. And we forget over and over and over again that there are certain people missing from our data set. There's a really fun example uh, I'd love to tell you about if, if I can, about the, the accidental discovery of a drug. The drug was called uh, sildenafil and it was tested on uh, a whole bunch of men. It wasn't tested on women. And the reason it wasn't tested on women was just because uh, it's more complicated. Women have monthly cycles. Women might be pregnant. It's just easier to test it on men. So they tested this drug on men and it was for heart trouble. Uh, for angina. They find it didn't really work. For, and it wasn't as a treatment for angina. But all of these men noticed a certain prominent side effect in the, the pants department. The drug was then rebranded Viagra, and the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing about that story. Sildenafil, much more recently, has been found to maybe, it's a very small trial, we're not sure, could be wrong, but maybe be a really, really good treatment for menstrual cramps, for period pain. Now, they could have found that out in the 1990s if they'd originally tested it on women. But they tested it on men, and so the accidental side effect was a side effect that only men experience, rather than a side effect that maybe only women might experience. I think that that is so startling, but it really tells you so much also. Like, if you don't make this more inclusive, then not only is it skewed, but you could be missing something huge. 
You know, you also go into a bit of a breakdown of algorithms and you cite my friend Kathy O'Neill, who wrote Weapons of Math Destruction, and she also blurred your book. It's a brilliant book. She's a legend. She had pointed out in her book just about how, you know, you think you've got this thing, this formula, this algorithm that, um, you know, essentially that you think that this is now sort of getting rid of any bias that's out there, whether it's, you know, there were not women included in this study or this. And yet she points out that, you know, actually an algorithm is created by a human being and human beings are subject to bias. So when we hear about algorithms in terms of, you know, um, whether it's a tech company or um, maybe something a little bit, you know, it's not nefarious, the Netflix algorithm. What should we take out of this from your perspective around the algorithmic culture that we live in right now? The lesson that really struck home to me actually is going to surprise you. It comes from a, a monk who lived in the 1600s. He taught us something really important. His name was, uh, was Marin Mersen. And he told something very important about how knowledge progresses. So at the time, you had the alchemists who were trying to turn, turn lead into gold, and you had the scientists. And it turns out the alchemists and the scientists were the same people, people like Isaac Newton. And they were using the same methods, experiments. And yet the alchemy went absolutely nowhere. They didn't even have productive failures. And the science, well, science became science. The rest is history. And Mersenne's insight was, if we want to make progress, we have to share information. We have to perform our experiments in a way that everyone can see them. Anybody can repeat them. People can criticize, can collaborate. He became known as the postbox of Europe. So scientists from all over Europe would post letters to, to Mersenne. And this monk would copy the letters out and would distribute them. And so people shared scientific knowledge. It didn't happen with, with alchemy. And it didn't happen with alchemy for a very simple reason, which is you discover how to turn lead into gold. You don't want anybody else to know, okay? Mm. So you keep it secret. And so the same people using the same methods made loads of progress with science and zero progress with alchemy. And it's all about transparency, oversight, competition, collaboration, discussion. Okay, let's think about algorithms. They're like alchemy. I mean, mm. it's, a, it's a powerful tool and we are learning things. It's not as fruitless as, as trying to turn lead into gold, but we have the same destructive norms of secrecy. So you have a company that says, we've got an algorithm and you just feed it a bunch of information about a, somebody who's been accused of a crime or convicted of a crime. And we'll tell you if this person is at risk of reoffending. And we say, okay, well, how do we know that your algorithm works? And they say, well, it's a, that's a, a trade secret that's commercially confidential. And so we have these algorithms where we're told they're brilliant and governments always willing to believe a, a, you know, a nice piece of technical snake oil will go, yeah, that sounds great. An algorithm, great. That's going to solve all our problems. And it's actually very, very difficult to subject these algorithms to public scrutiny. So that's the lesson I think we really need to take. And I, I think Cathy O'Neill, and she is fantastic, I think she'd agree there's nothing intrinsically wrong with algorithms. They can work. They do work. They will potentially correct all kinds of unfairness, but not if we 
abandon our modern norms of scrutiny and transparency. That's what we need to demand of these algorithms. I know. And everyone like sort of lumps algorithms and statistics and investment returns into like a bucket of like, oh, my God, I hate math. And what you're really saying is, you know, there is there is the math, but there is also, again, the emotion. And I want to finish this uh, interview with you talking about investor stubbornness, which you you talk about at the end of the book, and a great example of how stubbornness and emotions can get in your way is really a comparison between two economists. So can you explain the story and what you take away from that story? Yeah. I mean, as you can tell, Jill, I love stories. The book is full of stories. And this story is about Irving Fisher and John Maynard Keynes. John Maynard Keynes needs no introduction. Quite a few listeners will be going, I've never heard of Irving Fisher. Who's Irving Fisher? And people who do know who Irving Fisher is, probably is he's most famous for saying two weeks before the great Wall Street crash of 1929, stocks have reached a new and permanently high plateau. So not an investment genius, but he was a genius. He was the most famous economist on the planet at that time. So you've got Fisher and Keynes. They're both active at the same time. They're both brilliant. They're both very interested in investment. And they both failed to predict the Wall Street crash. The difference between them is that Fisher would just double down and double down again and backed himself into a corner and was unable to walk away from his very public predictions. Whereas Keynes, partly because I think he was less publicly exposed, partly also because he was just a different kind of character, turned on a sixpence and walked away. Said, oh yeah, well, I I messed that up. You win some, you lose some. One comment he made to his father was, win or lose, this high stakes gambling amuses me. So they made the same mistake. Keynes very quickly changed his mind and ended up dying a millionaire, very, very successful investor. Fisher, same mistake, was only saved from bankruptcy and indeed prison by being bailed out by his sister-in-law, who was a millionaire. Very, very sad story. It's all about the importance of being willing to change your mind, whether we're talking about investment or just your opinions about almost anything. I mean, Keynes, Keynes is famous for having said, and he never said it, but he's famous for it anyway, for having said, when the facts change, I change my opinion. What do you do? He lived that. And I think that's why he's famous for the quote, even though it's a misattribution. Sadly, he never got the chance to teach the lesson to Irving Fisher. It's amazing because I think that people do dig in. It's funny what we're talking to you just a couple of weeks after the whole GameStop stock meme. I was going to say fiasco, but I'm sure that there are plenty of people who made money on this. Well, so event. Yeah. Even and, even my teenage children are telling me about stonks. They're really into yeah. stonks now. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm, I wonder how you see social media amplifying some of the, the worst aspects of these points that you're raising, that you can dig in, that you can find your echo chamber. If you're only seeking your information by being on Wall Street Bets on a subreddit called Wall Street Bets, or you're only watching one news channel to get your political news, it makes me nervous to think that, in fact, um, the doubling down echo chamber of social media and media in general makes it tougher to use your book and open minds. So 
what can you leave us with to put me in a better mood? Because now, you know, I've just convinced myself the world's coming to an end and no one's going to be open-minded ever again. Look, it's never been easier to get really good quality information. It's never been easier to get a second opinion. It's never been easier to go straight to the source, to double check the data. A lot of this is about having the desire and the emotional maturity to, to do so. Social media doesn't help. But then traditional media doesn't necessarily help either. I mean, if it's the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, The Economist, The New Yorker, great. But there's a lot of trash out in the traditional media as well. But the way I think of it is, is this. When people are thinking about numbers, the three C's. First, calm. Just try and notice your emotional reaction and tone it down. Because so much of what we believe is about emotions, anger, joy, vindication, winning an argument. So first C is calm. Then you're thinking more clearly. The second C is context. How does this number relate to other numbers? Is it going up or down? Is it big or small? What's actually being measured? Where's it come from? Context is important. And then the final C is curiosity. And what does this number actually tell me about the world? What does it suggest is a gap in my knowledge? What else can I find out? Where else can I go to find out more, to scratch that itch of curiosity? So those are the three C's calm, context, curiosity, really important. When you think about Twitter, Facebook, they can help with all of them. I mean, they can help you with curiosity. They can provide context. But very often they are thriving on emotion. They're thriving on sound bites that are stripped of all context. And they thrive on arguments. So not being curious about the world, but trying to win an argument. If you can find a way to use them that respects the three C's, calm, context, curiosity, go for it. It is possible. But I think the very design of those systems tends to push in the opposite direction. And and that is something that worries me. Thanks so much to Tim Harford for joining us again. We'll have a link to his book, The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. It would make a very, very good gift for your child who might be going off to college. That would be an excellent graduation gift. So check that out. All right. If you have more questions about what's going on in your own financial life, send us an email, askjill at jillonmoney.com. Askjill at jillonmoney.com. And if you're on our website, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. And we just want to thank you so much for listening. It's been a full year now that we've been going daily in our podcast. And boy, we are grateful to you. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman, Mark Talercio. That's who I'm most grateful for. He is our executive producer extraordinaire. We are distributed by Cadence 13. Don't forget to wash your hands, to wear your masks, to maintain your physical distancing and do something for somebody else today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.